who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 270. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week again, we're brought to you by post-apocalyptic audio drama, The Cleansed. Fifteen years have passed since the traumatic undoing of society known as The Breaking. In The Cleansed, we follow two interlocking stories, one of the refuge, where Maria and Luke, sister and adopted brother, grow up in a hard-scrabble life of farming and homemade solar and wind-powered tools. Their life is interrupted when John Prophet, a ghost from their parents' past, comes mysteriously riding in one fine afternoon. Prophet's arrival comes because far away across the ocean, a new force called the Republic is rising, a force bearing military might and an iron fist. Dad always told me that when the world went down, it wasn't with a big crash. It was a series of them, like strand after strand snapping from a big web. Did he ever tell you what it was like? No. Well, Mom told me about New York at Christmas time. She told me the millions of people crowded around each other in their own private universes and moving at a hundred miles an hour, held together by the ability for things to move, to get from point A to point B. A great, gigantic web of energy. But then, snap, 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 and the world went away. Do you remember that, Luke? Yeah. Yeah, I remember Maria. I remember I remember through fog as if it were a nightmare. The, the kind you can't wake from. 
I remember that things got lean at first. That was okay. We moved from place to place. My, my real mom and I, but, but we were together. We had food. We had a roof over our head, right? Then the fighting started. My dad came to get me. And then the soldiers came to get him. And... I'm sorry, Luke. No, no, don't be sorry, but everyone has always been sorry for me. Then tell the story, Luke. You tell it better than anyone. You say it like it was an adventure. Well, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> Time. So? I don't know, Maria. There's just so much to remember. Start at the beginning then, huh? What, with John Prophet? John Prophet. Yeah, he was the center of the web that brought all these people together. And then tore them apart. Yeah, that sounds about right, doesn't it? John Prophet the Spider. Oh, tell the story, Luke. Tell them all about John Headstrong Prophet, who nearly killed us all trying to save us. Okay, okay. Okay, Maria, I'll do my best. This isn't podcast fiction, folks. Not like you're used to here on the Dravelcast. This is straight-up audio drama. Cinema for the ears. And it sets a new standard for anyone trying to do this as far as I'm concerned. And it even goes beyond just the story production. There's original artwork for each episode, too. Just like your homeboys here at the Drabblecast. And it's cool and stylistic artwork to boot. Check out your screens if you're listening to the enhanced file version of our show right now. You'll see what I mean. Fred from Final Rune Productions, longtime Drabblecast listener and producer of The Cleansed, is offering a special for Drabblecast fans that purchase an original ink drawing. You get the piece for $25 off regular price, plus he'll give you the uncut digital box set of Season 1 for totally free. That's four hours of action-packed awesome listening, plus the digital booklet on its own at $25 value. You'll find this deal at our own special Drabblecast Cleansed page at www.thecleansed.com forward slash Drabblecast, also linked in our show notes. Check it out for some cool discounts available exclusively to weirdos such as yourselves. Alright, 100 word story time. This week's travel comes to us from David Metis, and it's called The Politics of Time Travel. David lives in Northern California with his wife, two-year-old daughter, and family pup. He writes travels in his spare time like any fine, upstanding family man, and also makes Minecraft videos, which... Yeah, you can check out at youtube.com forward slash T-E-H Metis. The governments of the world were very interested in my time machine. They had put together committees and think tanks to determine the laws that would govern time travel. They determined that no private citizen or government should have the power to alter the timeline. The governments of the world were very interested in my time machine. They had put together committees and think tanks to determine the laws that would govern time travel. They finally determined that only I, who was foretold in all of the world's ancient texts, should be able to alter the timeline. 
bureaucracy. The pointless skip ad question when you're trying to watch something worthless and inane on YouTube. If it wasn't for useless bureaucracy, Chipotle burritos would explode directly into toilets without any human interruption. That's not entirely true, but excessive administrative red tape still sucks, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. Quote, the only thing that saves us from bureaucracy is its absolute inherent inefficiency. Senator and poet Eugene McCarthy once huffed, probably in a smarmy tone during a work carpool while some poor passive-aggressive sap in the passenger seat tried to turn up the volume and listen to NPR Science Friday. Every revolution evaporates and leaves behind only the slime of new bureaucracy, went on the great Franz Kafka, probably two beers into a dismal online date with some first-year nursing student from OK Cupid, desperately trying to steer a conversation away from nihilist politics and back to Florence and the Machine, or the latest season of How I Met Your Mother. What, you haven't seen it? Oh my god, it's the best. It's the best. Anyways, bureaucracy sucks, but what can you do? Kafka might have been a horrible date, but he had a point. The slick, pungent, and inevitable slime of new bureaucracy on this week's show, folks. We bring you The First Conquest of Earth by David W. Goldman. David finished paying off his loans from a well-known Boston trade school by moving to the Pacific Northwest, abandoning his trade, and becoming a software company. Eventually, he wised up and found himself a day job. Now living in Portland, Oregon, the land of bearded, homebrew hippies such as our narrator this week, Dave spends time with his multi-talented wife and the obligate pair of feline distractions. Find him at davidwgoldman.com. Our story this week is read to you by the stage presence spewing spigot of my frankly amazing bluegrass comedy duo, The Skidmarks, Dave Dusty Magnum de Dionisio, host and producer of the best music review blog and podcast on the interwebs, Those Who Dig.net. What, you haven't heard of it? Oh my god, it's the best. It's the best. So without further ado, we bring you The First Conquest of Earth by David W. Goldman. just beyond the asteroid belt, end-of-the-world riots broke out in cities around the globe. But when astronomers calculated that the huge, silent ships would take nearly three weeks to reach Earth, all but the most committed rioters felt their enthusiasm wilt. By the end of the day, they'd all dropped their bricks or bats and slunk home, plundered consumer electronics in hand, muttering about the aliens' apparent lack of urgency. Nearly three weeks later, the alien fleet braked into Earth orbit. Telescopes provided increasingly detailed photographs of the six immense, gleaming spheres, thoroughly bristled with ominous protuberances. Once the ships had settled into an assortment of planet-girdling orbits, the transmissions began. Radio and television channels in every part of the world were filled by an androgynous voice. After nearly two minutes of declamation, in Chinese, the voice paused briefly. With a slight click, it resumed. Humans of Earth, be advised. 
In accordance with the law and custom of the syndicate of mutually tolerated civilizations, you are hereby notified that your existence has caused unacceptable offense to the free trading people of the Orlop hegemony. You are hereby granted a period of anticipatory mourning, said period to extend no less than 87 and no more than 121 hours from the initiation of this notification. At the completion of said period, the conquest of Earth by the Orlop hegemony will commence. In accordance with the syndicate law and custom, the conquering party will be granted right of first refusal toward all resources of the conquered party, including, but not limited to, items of mineral, biological, and intellectual. In addition, the conquered party shall immediately provide the conquering party with a supply of personal slaves, equal in number to the population of the conquering party, or one quarter of the population of the conquered party, whichever is less, as determined at the commencement of conquest. Said slaves shall be non-returnable and fully transferable, with the provider guaranteeing perpetual replacements for fatal defects caused by improper design, intrinsic pathology, or self-negligent behavior. Further details, including a complete database of relevant syndicate law and custom, shall be disseminated immediately post-conquest at a non-declinable price set by the seller in accordance with syndicate law and custom. Humans of Earth, be advised. The message repeated in Spanish then in Hindi, and then, one by one, in 500 other languages. And then the Orlops went silent, disregarding the myriad governmental and other responses that frantically sought to clarify or negotiate. In the tense days that followed, behind closed doors in capitals around the globe, calls for a military response were hurriedly rebuffed by those terrified of Orlop reprisals. Given the aliens' presumed technical prowess, not to mention the threatening appearance of their monstrous ships, no leader wanted to be the first to draw the Orlop's ire. So it was with a collective holding of high governmental breath that three days after the Orlop transmission, these same leaders responded to urgent alerts that a missile launch had been detected in North Korea. For ten minutes, terrestrial, airborne, and satellite reconnaissance focused on the rocket climbing toward one of the great alien vessels. Watchers argued over likely Orlop countermeasures. Lasers and particle beams, space-to-space -space projectiles, remote reprogramming of the weapon's guidance systems? The missile continued its ascent. Or perhaps the aliens were waiting until the instant before impact when they would simply dodge the primitive Earth weapon using the fantastic acceleration of their formidable engines. The Orlaps didn't dodge. The missile struck the ship's hull and exploded, its flare immediately blinding most of Earth's observing instruments. As new instruments were hastily brought to bear, they did not reveal a crippled warship venting atmosphere and debris from a jagged, gaping wound. Instead, the entire ship had been vaporized. A huge, dimming cloud of glowing gas expanded outward from the point of explosion. The five remaining ships were moving to higher orbits. None, so far, had taken any other apparent action. An anxious Earth awaited reprisal. Silent minutes passed, and then the radio and television transmissions returned. As before, the familiar voice spoke first in Chinese, briefly this time, before switching to English. Humans of Earth, we had no idea that you possessed weapons of such ferocity. The Orlop hegemony offers its immediate and unconditional surrender. June 2013 René Erdani hated his job. 
After more than a decade of generally satisfying work as a United Nations negotiator, a month ago, Rene had thought he'd reached his career zenith by being named head of the Earth Delegation to the Settlement of Conquest Talks. But today, his chief motivation for getting out of bed was the knowledge that in a few hours, the final documents would be signed, and then for the rest of his life, Rene Erdani could spend each day not speaking with the Orlops. Following his superior's bidding, Rene had started the first day of talks by demanding all scientific and technical details needed to construct vessels with the speed of the Orlop's ships. Trules, the Orlop negotiator, a deferential entity who stood a head taller than Rene, and otherwise bore a remarkable resemblance to a purple, three-armed Seguro cactus plush toy, had responded by causing its cart to trace a small circle on the floor. A familiar human-sounding voice then emerged from a fist-sized brass crescent strapped to Trules' trunk. I regret to inform the dignified representative of the people of the Earth that while the Orlop hegemony would, of course, be eager to supply its conqueror with the information you request, we are otherwise constrained by the law and custom of the syndicate of mutually tolerated civilizations. Constrained? Rene responded. How so? Again, the Orlop traced a circle. In the succeeding weeks, Rene would come to abhor this gesture. According to Trules, it indicated humble and regretful apology, but Rene would grow to suspect that it actually represented the Orlop equivalent of a snicker. The people of Earth, by syndicate law and custom, have right of first refusal to all intellectual resources of the Orlop hegemony. However, said law and custom also require the hegemony to demand an appropriate and fair price for any resource transferred. With all humility and respect, I must inform the dignified representative of the people of the earth that his world presently lacks the assets necessary to purchase the information in question. I see. Rene steepled his fingers. Perhaps there has been some confusion in translating the terms conquest and unconditional surrender. But Trules wouldn't budge. It claimed that the syndicate placed considerable emphasis on encouraging its members to uphold syndicate law and customs. Rene remained calm. We have defeated your armada with a single small missile. Hundreds of more powerful weapons are now trained upon your remaining ships. You are hardly in a position to refuse our demands. Relations between the hegemony and your syndicate are of no concern to Earth. Truel circled. It explained that the syndicate's encouragement in such matters tended to involve the warships of member civilizations whose military vigor significantly exceeded that of the Orlop hegemony. Or of Earth. Rene chose not to press the point. According to his briefings, from their new, higher orbits, the Orlop ships could easily detect and avoid anything Earth might launch at them. Humanity's superior status in these talks seemed to depend entirely upon Orlop convention, and not anything Earth could enforce. Over the following days, Rene failed to acquire the secrets of artificial gravity, interstellar travel via wormhole, and vacuum-based energy generation. Then, in a protracted negotiation whose inventiveness and resolve would be studied for decades by diplomats worldwide, he finally forced Trules to name an accessible price for the details of a very limited form of teleportation. Unfortunately, that deal was ultimately scuttled by Turkey's disinclination to allow Istanbul to be shipped off-world. At one point, 
Rene had asked the Orlop on a purely hypothetical basis what humanity might purchase with a promise to allow trolls to return to its ship unharmed. Trolls didn't flinch. The taking of hostages, if I may so grossly recharacterize the hypothetical suggestion of the esteemed Earth representative, is not, in fact, prohibited by any syndicate law or custom. Rene's eyebrows lifted. Indeed, he replied. However, continued Trolls, in such situations, member civilizations are enjoined from paying, directly or otherwise, any form of ransom or liberation fee. The penalties for non-compliance are impressive. We're talking about your life, Trolls. Hypothetically. Rene pursed his lips. I believe you're bluffing. Trolls's trunk twisted clockwise a gesture that Rene had come to consider a shrug. The beliefs of the distinguished representative of the people of Earth are of course his own, but as at present we are speaking of hypotheticals and such like, I hope that the respected representative will not be offended by my changing the topic to a brief description of the planet-broiling devices possessed by a few of the Syndicate's member civilizations. Rene chose not to press the point. In the end, Rene had been able to satisfy only a single request from his superiors. In exchange for two tons of refined ibidium, Trolls had agreed to hand over a sample of his purple integument. The UN Department of Franchising Orlov action figures was ecstatic. Now, in this final meeting with Trolls, Rene watched somberly as the settlement of conquest documents were signed, or in Trolls' case, purpley smudged. Rene had done his best to draft an agreement as impressive-sounding as the occasion of Earth's first interstellar conquest deserved. But buried within the usual vacuous ceremonial language were really only two substantive points. First, that the Orlop hegemony had been conquered by Earth. Second, that humanity would purchase from the hegemony, immediately upon conclusion of the signing ceremony, a complete database of syndicate law and custom, along with a syndicate new member application form at the non-declinable price of six tons of refined iridium. As diplomats and world leaders chatted over champagne, Rene managed to extract his opposite number for a brief conversation in an adjacent room. You know, Trules, he began, there's something I've wondered about. The Orlop twisted counterclockwise, indicating a query. How is it, asked Rene, that your people could master 500 Earth languages, yet in the process, somehow never notice that we possess and frequently argue about nuclear weapons. The trunk twisted clockwise. Our surveillance was obviously imperfect. Will that be all? Bemused, Rene shook his head. Trolls, you and I have spoken every day for a month, yet I don't think I understand you or your people any better now than when we first met. How fascinating. I think I'll head back to the party. As the Orlop pivoted, Rene said, Representative Trolls, I note that your former, uh, formal prolixity seems to have lessened somewhat now that the settlement has been signed. The Orlop paused. Don't sweat it, Rene. Tomorrow the Orlop hegemony will start fulfilling all of its requirements as a conquered civilization. Rene frowned. 
Wait. But Trules wheeled onward through the doorway, his cart tracing a small circle as he crossed the threshold. September 2025. Stephanie leaned her sponge mop against an armchair and opened the front door. On the other side of the screen door squatted a waist-high, grayish-orange lumpy cone. Its glistening surface heaved with each of its wheezy breaths. The stick-like appendage it had used to ring the doorbell was now slurpily retracting into an oozing blister near the cone's pockmarked peak. Stephanie turned away. Jason, she shouted, your new alien is here. As usual, the teenager failed to respond to her call. In the meantime, the alien on her porch had rotated so that the brass crescent strapped around its otherwise undefined midriff pointed towards Stephanie. Jace, it announced. On. A few seconds later, it added, You? Stephanie sighed. No, I'm his mother. You might as well come in. She pushed the screen open an inch until it nearly struck the alien. Back up, so I can open the door. The alien rose on its many tiny feet to scoot away, and then to scurry inside. As it passed her, Stephanie glanced down. In the alien's wake, a faint sheen of slime coated the living room's hardwood floor. Well, that was an improvement, anyhow. Stephanie's own alien shuffled in from the dining room, maybe an inch taller than the newcomer with a more bluish tinge and considerably more lumps. Its synthetic voice was indistinguishable from the others. Dorb, it informed her. L. Yes, she said. I've already answered it. See? Stephanie's alien pivoted to bring its eye blisters to bear on the new arrival. They viewed each other for a moment, and one of them said, Hell. 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 Hell replied the other. Stephanie told her alien to lead the newcomer to Jason. She waited as they left the room, like two wobbling, wheezing fire hydrants, and then she retrieved her sponge mop, making a half-hearted attempt to wipe up the newcomer's sheen of slime, along with the familiar ropey mucus trail beside it. She made her way to the kitchen, and swore. Shards of her favorite mug lay scattered on the floor beside the open dishwasher. Only a few days had passed since she commanded her alien, again, to leave all dishes for her to handle. As she turned toward the broom stationed in the room's corner, she made the further discovery that somehow her alien, perhaps while reacting to its crockery mishap, had managed to knock her toaster off the counter. Burnt crumbs surrounded the dented appliance. Stephanie sighed. Last week, while Jason had been engrossed by a video game, his alien had decided to rinse out Jason's hairdryer without unplugging it. Stephanie had insisted that Jason be the one to pull the wagon holding the corpse, despite her own alien's repeated attempts to assume the task. When they arrived at City Hall and eventually reached the front of the line, it was Jason who had to explain the circumstances of his alien's demise to the local syndicate arbitrator. After listening to the teenager's halting tale, the arbitrator, who bore a remarkable resemblance to a goldfish bowl overfilled with a constantly roiling pink sand, asked to view the remains. Jason and Stephanie stepped aside. The arbitrator roiled. Stephanie glanced at her son. He shifted from foot to foot. She saw that he'd crossed his fingers on both of his hands. Finally, the arbitrator ruled the death a case of self-negligence. Jason let out a loud, relieved sigh. No maltreatment penalty would be assessed against humanity. 
the arbitrator ordered, per syndicate law and custom, that a non-returnable replacement slave be transferred as soon as practical from the holdings of the Orlop hegemony. Stephanie winced at the term slave. Nobody she knew liked to use that word, regardless of its contractual accuracy. Alien wasn't a huge improvement, but no one had come up with anything better. The alien's original name for themselves, along with their original language and culture, had been lost somewhere in the thousands of times they'd been transferred from one conquered civilization to the next. Over the following week, Stephanie had maintained a facade of sternness, and Jason continued to act appropriately abashed. Really, though, she envied his alien-free days. But now, she thought as she lifted her toaster to the counter, things were back to normal. Her alien wobbled into the kitchen. It extruded an appendage to grab the dustpan from the counter and shuffled toward the scatter of burnt crumbs. Sar. It said. E. As the alien circled around the crumbs, kicking them into the dustpan with its numerous feet, Stephanie gasped. On the alien's rear surface, a deep vertical crevice ran from its bluish lumpy tip to its heavy base. Is that... She began. I mean, are you... Splitting? The alien paused. Joy, it said. New me. Stephanie gaped. Aliens were supposed to fission only once every 70 years or so. Of course, you couldn't really tell an alien's age, but this one had been with her for just a few years, and they all seemed so... childlike. Congratulations, she told herself. Soon the endless days of being followed everywhere by an idiot alien would be over. By this time tomorrow she could start getting used to the company of two idiot aliens. Great, she said. New me, repeated the alien. Great. June, 2213. Mustafa Jungsu Dawson hated his job. Faster, said the exercise bike, using its perkiest voice. Dig. Mustafa gritted his teeth and pedaled harder. The harness holding him to his bike chafed his ribs. Say, said the bike, how about a cultural monitoring session while you enjoyably maintain your bone and muscle health? Mustafa grunted assent. An image formed in the air before him. As it expanded into a monochrome view of the inside of a crowded subterranean den, Mustafa recognized first the hangings on the den's walls, and then the two shaggy creatures, each bearing a remarkable resemblance to a long-haired koala with five legs and two eye stalks, swaying from side to side in the foreground. Ran Free Free's den of odorousness. Of all the programs emanating from the small green planet that orbited 4AU in system of Mustafa's ship, this was one of the more accessible. Slapstick, if you could believe syndicate archives, was universal. The episode diverted Mustafa enough that the bike twice had to remind him to keep pedaling. At the show's end, he unstrapped himself, grabbing a hand vacuum as he floated from the saddle. For the next five minutes, Mustafa chased sweat droplets around the cabin, cursing, as he did several times each day, the ridiculous prices that syndicate civilizations demanded for the secrets underlying artificial gravity generation. But for the moment, humanity could barely keep up with even its most essential expenses— Mustafa's boss, for example, had paid so much for the coordinates of this solar system that afterwards she could afford only a pair of single-person scout ships for the actual prospecting. So Mustafa was stuck here, 
alone for three years while the other ship shuttled back to Earth and then returned with his relief. Well, not exactly alone. Glued to the hull above the command console, a syndicate arbitrator ensured that Mustafa adhered to all laws and customs governing first contacts. Its pink sand swirled vigilantly any time Mustafa's hand strayed near the knobs of his radio, or approached the switches that would deploy his cargo. Otherwise, it seldom deigned to acknowledge his existence. Now, pointedly ignoring the arbitrator, Mustafa strapped himself to the command chair and began to run through the past day's recordings of technical, military, and political communications among the furballs. Well, Mustafa had to call the five-legged locals something, and he certainly didn't want to prejudice future negotiations by getting into the habit of using a term from any one of the planet's multitudinous bickering cultures. A series of muffled bangs emerged from the hatch at the cabin's other end. Mustafa pivoted, just in time to see the hatch squeak open. Through the opening oozed a clutch of slime-coated liquid globules. He watched for a moment as they wafted, undulating, out into the cabin's air. Mustafa turned back to the console, not bothering to sigh. The furballs had invented nuclear explosives decades ago. They'd been launching ballistic missiles for five years now. So far, though, nobody seemed to have gotten around to combining the two technologies. Sar, said a voice from behind the hatch. Mustafa eyed the switches that would inflate his small fleet of warships and send them on their way. He hoped the furballs would hurry up. So it's legal to sleep on a pillow, but illegal to hold it over somebody's face till they stop breathing? Ugh, government. Anyways, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. The Ottomans thought they were pretty badass for taking down Constantinople, right? Now they're a superfluous furniture alternative to resting your feet on the floor. So if you enjoyed this week's story, it sure would be keen of you to take a minute and donate to the show. You don't have to give. We want this experience to be free for you. But you should know that if and when you do, I get an email that very instant saying, Joe Schmo Bergenstein von Gyllenhaal from Awesomeville, Saskatchewan gave a million dollars to the Drabblecast. And let me tell you, I feel like doing a hundred more of these episodes right then and there, awkwardly in my ill-timed prostate exam. Because damn it, you don't have to give to this show, and that's what's so damn cool when you do. It flies in the face of every system and commercial procedure coarsely installed by the fumbling, Dorito-scented fingers of oafish modern man, in all of its Cool Ranch-flavored splendor. We want to do this, to pay authors for being talented and creative, to produce their stories, the best we can find, freely to anybody who's able to listen. Because that's just an awesome thing to do. And you can hit up Drabblecast.org and donate any amount. That's an awesome thing for you to do. I mean, obviously you're going to want to hone in somewhat on the generous example of our previously mentioned friend, the multicultural German-Irish-Canadian Jillen Jew from Awesomeville, Saskatchewan, whatever. But seriously, whatever you can give is kick-ass. And kick-ass is exactly what fuels this clamoring, sharp-toothed beast right into your face each week. Hit up Drabblecast.org and donate. 
All right, so let's go to our 100-character story winner this week by Algernon Sidney is Dead. The walrus ate no fruit. Plus, he and half the garden warned of the dangers. But three bad apples ruined Eden for everybody. All right. So if you didn't know already, each week we host a 100-character story writing contest from our discussion forums, where we pick a winner and post it out on our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast. That's 100 characters, not counting spaces. You gotta tread lightly architecting those. Give it a shot sometime if you have a minute. Post it in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter, at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Richard Green. Richard's a freelance book cover designer living in Atlanta with his teenage sons, two dogs, and a very loud parrot named Wadley. Check out his website at richardkgreen.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, he's snickering when he circles around like that. hour ago this place was loaded, and noise filled the room like the smoke. Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled, or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. <laughs>